Hi everyone, welcome to our Wikistrat podcast about the situation in Belarus and Russia's strategy uh, and response to it. Uh, with me today are some of the two of the top experts, uh, leading experts in the world when it comes to Russia. Uh, first one is Margaliotti from Rusi, and uh, with him is Kerry Giles from Chatham House. Uh, both are, uh, they're not going to say it, but I'm going to say it, are the leading, uh, definitely one of the top tens uh, leading experts in the world when it comes to, to Russia and, and related issues uh, surrounding everything that surrounds Russia. Um, our discussion today is going to be primarily about not so much as much as the situation in Belarus, but it's going to be about Russia's uh, potential response, interests, um, and the questions that surround the uh, the Russian response to the situation and potential strategy and actions that they might take. Um, so welcome on board. Um, Mark here, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I want to start with you, uh, Mark. And the first question I would like to ask you, actually, and uh, here uh, you may follow up uh, as well, is what do you... Uh, think about the situation currently in Belarus and how do you analyze the situation in terms of what's going on um, and from the perspective of how do you see the situation evolving in the upcoming days? Well, that of course is, is the question and the thing is exactly, it's a very rapidly moving situation and none of us really know, if, if we're honest. Uh, that said, I mean, I, for me, one of the fundamental issues is this, is that Lukashenko has lost any last shreds of legitimacy he had. He is ruling essentially through the security apparatus and through the, the bone and sinews of the state. Now, he may get through this particular crisis. If he can survive the next couple of weeks, he probably will. But all he's done is he's, he's postponed it. He's, he's promised constitutional changes, a referendum and a vote. So this is gonna be coming back. I mean, even if he survives this particular bout then in a month or maybe a year, he's going to be back here and probably even weaker. So I think really the question we're talking about is the, this, the slow or quick, we'll have to wait and see, but nonetheless, the death of the Lukashenko regime and how everyone adapts to that. I think Mark is absolutely right. The situation is unstable and unpredictable at the moment. But one of the things I want to emphasize from what Mark said is that when we are in these situations, when you see authoritarian regimes start to lose their grip and start to lose their legitimacy, uh, people often expect that the change is going to be very sudden, that a new government is going to arrive immediately. But it always takes longer than people expect. Then uh, when things finally reach that tipping point, everything happens faster than people expect. So the, the time frame really is the question here. I agree with Mark completely that now Lukashenko's power rests entirely on fraud and force. There is nothing to keep him there in the long term. The question is how long he can hold out and how orderly the transition will be uh, when that moment finally comes. And Kier, how do you perceive or how do you uh, uh, see the Russia's, Russian response to the situation and to the events unfolding? 
Well, Russia will respond depending on how exactly those events unfold, because there are several different directions uh, things could go. Some of them pose a direct and immediate problem for Russia, others Russia will be entirely content with. Now, the scenario, of course, that has got people very excited at the moment is the Ukraine-style situation, where Russia convinces itself that, uh, that a country which is uh, in entertaining some thoughts of joining uh, Western institutions is in fact turning its back on Russia and this entails all kinds of immediate dangers. Uh, we don't see that at the moment. There are some of the ingredients that led Russia to intervene in Ukraine in 2014, but by no means all. And in particular, the opposition position, or rather the, the position of the protesters, this leaderless movement now uh, in Belarus, is not in itself anti-Russian. Although I have seen just in the last few minutes before we started recording, uh, that President Lukashenko is now trying very hard to pretend that it is. He says the opposition manifesto includes leaving the Union State, enforcing Belarusian language, uh, putting in extra border controls with Russia, all of the things that you would get, expect to, to get the um, the section of the population that thinks uh, good relations with Russia is a good thing, terribly excited and potentially also appealing to Moscow as well. The question, of course, is how many people are in Belarus are actually now still listening to him? Yeah, I think if I could just sort of piggyback on that, and again, I, sadly, for the sake of drama, I, I actually am, once again, I'm going to be agreeing with Kia. Um, very much, I think this is a case in which both sides are very much thinking about how Moscow will perceive the situation. Lukashenko, having ironically enough played the Russia is interfering in Belarus politics card before the elections, when he arrested 33 Wagner mercenaries who seem to have been passing through and claimed they were part of some sinister plot. Now he is suddenly pushing the line that the protesters are just simply pawns of the West and, and NATO and such like. I, I suspect that Moscow will not instantly believe him. But at the same time, the opposition, whether it's out of conviction or whether it's out of common sense, is very, very carefully avoiding any appearance that it is anti-Moscow. It's very much simply saying this is against Lukashenko, this is for free and fair elections. End of story. Now, whether or not the Kremlin feels it can live with that is a whole other issue. But nonetheless, at the moment, the opposition is being very, very clear about the, the focus of its attentions. Mark, do you, do you think the Kremlins view this situation as an opportunity or as a threat uh, to their interests? I don't think the Kremlin can be looking at this with, with any great enthusiasm. Um, their ideal scenario was, after all, that Lukashenko hung on, but weaker. Not because they have any time or sympathy for Lukashenko, let alone trust for him, but rather because at least they knew where they were. And they knew that when it came down to it, however much Lukashenko could flirt with the West from time to time, he was still a brutal, bloody-handed dictator, and there was a limit to how close he could get to them. In this current circumstance, really, Moscow, in my opinion, would regard any kind of intervention as the second worst option at its disposal. The worst option being precisely seeing a Belarus that become pro-European, wants to join the European Union or anything like that. Again, Ukraine style emerging. So from their point of view, I think that they are really hoping that something can emerge with that they can live with, that they are not forced into a corner of either having to see that what they see as their strategic interests being weakened, 
because they regard Belarus as part of their rightful sphere of influence, or actually having to intervene in some kind of way which would be expensive, potentially bloody, and certainly would turn Belarus against Russia. All of this is correct, of course, and yes, Russia would rather not be presented with this problem because, after all, the, the previous situation was fairly manageable. So uh, I agree absolutely the, the second worst ish, um, problem would be intervening in Belarus because, uh, because they had to. But, of course, there are plenty of other steps that Russia could take short of an actual full-blown military intervention. So it may be that it is indeed seen as a threat, but uh, Russia for sure will be looking for opportunities within that threat. If, for for example, it were possible through to interpose uh, Russian diplomats as mediators for some kind of power transition. And of course, Russia's in a position to influence who actually comes out on top in the end. So I am sure that we will see plenty of maneuvering by Moscow as the situation evolves, trying to get the least worst outcome from all of this for Russia. How can I just piggyback one, one brief point on that, actually? Um, today, uh, Putin and Angela Merkel had a phone conversation about Belarus and obviously all we've got to go on are the very bland readouts though bland but strangely different readouts that, that we're getting from from Berlin and Moscow but nonetheless again I think one of one of the key points from from Russia's point of view is to avoid being seen as Lukashenko's last friend for the not least for the Belarusian people and therefore, the question is really, do they intercede to try and exactly manage some kind of straightforward handover? Or do they actually go further? Do they begin to look as if they actually want to put pressure on, on Lukashenko? Because that is also one of the opportunities to implicitly align themselves with, with the Belarusian street. Now, I don't think that they're going to be daring enough to do that. I think in this, they, they tend to be quite conservative. But Keir is right in that respect. There are, within the context of the threat, opportunities for Moscow. How close are we to a military intervention? I mean, it's it's a scenario that seems to be um, getting closer, so to speak, than, than what is, I mean, it's, it's much more plausible than what it used to be in the past. But how much would you say, uh, Kieran, and then I'll, I'll ask you, Mark, how much do you say this is something that is something that we're getting closer and closer by the day to kind of a Ukrainian-style scenario of a military intervention by Russia? Well, yes and no. It's fair to say that we are closer now to that possibility than we have been before, because let's not forget there have been plenty of situations over the last couple of decades where things looked as though they were getting tense in Russia and, uh, sorry, excuse me, in Belarus, and the prospect of a Russian military intervention was raised. Now, certainly the, the possibilities for what might happen now are far wider, and the situation is far more unstable and unpredictable than it has been in any of those previous crises that have come and gone. But I would disagree that we're actually getting closer day by day. It's a slower process and the the way in which this crisis is evolving doesn't seem to be moving immediately towards a situation where Russia would be forced urgently to step in. We don't seem to have a situation yet where um, despite the fact that the rug has been pulled out from under President Lukashenko and he has suddenly realized uh, at the, uh, the 
where giving speeches to factory workers and being shouted down uh, just over the last couple of days, he suddenly realized how little support he actually has. There are no signs yet of him taking any drastic action, which would, uh, which you might expect if he were losing his nerve or wanting to crack down suddenly. So put it all together and you have a situation where for sure Russia will be watching and will be ready. And a complicating factor in terms of telling what Russia will actually be doing is that we are now well into exercise season. So a lot of Russian military units are already on the move. Uh, Belarus is watching very carefully the exercises that have just started with the um, the 6th Army and the, the Western Military District's aviation because they say, is this messaging to us? But the plain fact is it might be hard to see when Russia did actually start a military movement. Always in this kind of situation, you do get alarming reports of Russia doing something. In this case, the uh, the most plausible thing that looks like it might have been a preparation to, to move something into Belarus was movements of Rosgvardia, National Guard, the, the militarized internal security service towards Belarus. And that's been put forward as a possibility. They don't belong to the Ministry of Defense. It wouldn't be technically a military invasion, no matter how much force they bring with them. And it might be something that uh, that Russia could propose as an alternative to actually moving forces in. But there are so many different possibilities at play. And this is something that um, uh, that Mark in particular would be, uh, would be able to say a lot about, the different elements of the Russian security and defense and force structures that might be usable to either lend support to Lukashenko or indeed to remove him if necessary. Mark? Yeah, it's interesting that you said, or if necessary, remove him, because we tend to draw a parallel, obviously, with, with Ukraine, because it's it's looming in our minds and, and it's still rolling on. But of course, you know, as you know, that the differences are, are huge. There is no equivalent of the Crimea or the Donbass, where people might be at all sympathetic to Russian forces. There hasn't been a collapse of the Belarus chain of command, or at least not yet. Um, and generally, there's much, much less penetration of the Belarus military and above all security structures than had happened in Ukraine by 2014. So in some ways, if we're going to draw a parallel, and it's not a particularly comfortable parallel for the Russians, I think the best parallel would be Afghanistan 1979, when they, they intervened to, to stop what they saw as the potential collapse of one of their proxy states. And in the same time, the same operation to remove a head of state that they thought was counterproductive and un unfriendly and impose a, a new one whom they thought was going to be rather more congenial and um, rather more effective. Because after all, Afghanistan, this was just going to be a six month operation. Remove the old head of state, install a new one, overall the country with a quick show of force and within six months you're out. Of course, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, but nonetheless, I think that is probably more likely the kind of scenario we would see, because absolutely, as Keir has said, I mean, there's a whole variety of different assets at the Russians' disposal. But the bottom line is they could send in security forces to try and bolster Lukashenko's. But if they do that, then in effect, they might have kind of held on to the country, but they would absolutely have lost the Belarusian population because that would associate them with, with Lukashenko and his own hated security forces above all the Oman riot police. So alternatively, what they might well be tempted to do is instead send in their little green men, quote unquote, their commandos, precisely to actually remove Lukashenko. 
and then perhaps some, with some kind of follow-up of forces, really just to simply say, we are here for the sake of stability, but don't worry, we have got rid of, of Lukashenko. It would be a high-risk strategy, and as I said, it's an uncomfortable uh, parallel, but nonetheless, I think that's probably the kind of scenario, if any, is currently, and let's face it, it's the job of general staffs to wargame all kinds of different contingencies. But if anything is currently being sort of dreamed up in, in the bowels of the general staff building, I suspect it would be something like that. There are two important issues that come off what uh, what Mark has just said. First of all, with the, the parallel with Afghanistan, uh, one of the questions we have to ask is, how would Russia assess what the reaction would be if they were to move into Belarus? It wouldn't be inconceivable for them to get that answer spectacularly wrong, as they did in Afghanistan, as they did in Ukraine, through underestimating the, the resilience of statehood and ideas of sovereignty and the resistance to them uh, from the Belarusian population, because if you do genuinely subscribe to the idea that all of these are basically Russia and intervening in Belarus would be an internal affair because it's not a proper country, which is a sentiment that President Putin has, has expressed about Ukraine several times, then you are bound to get wrong your assessment of the human terrain into which you're moving. So let's not underestimate uh, the capacity of Russia to, to miscalculate what the reaction to a military move would be. But another element of that, and, and one that has uh, confused people about Belarus a lot, I think, in the past, is the reaction of the Belarusian security forces and, and armed forces. And Mark mentioned the extent of penetration into them. Uh, there has been a, a consistent story, which we've heard particularly from Belarus's neighbors, uh, Poland and Lithuania, that actually the Belarus armed forces are basically undistinguishable from their Russian counterparts. It's like a subdivision of the Russian army just in a different country, uh, no capacity for independent decision-making, operationally subordinated, etc. And therefore you would assume that there would be no resistance whatsoever and Russian military uh, forces moving into Belarus would in effect be welcomed by their Belarusian counterparts. Now, that, has, um, that is quite a persuasive narrative because, after all, the Poles and the Lithuanians who look at this very closely ought to know what they're talking about, but it doesn't quite seem to match up with the reality within Belarus itself. And as Mark has just intimated, this position is more complex, and we should not necessarily assume that it would be a walkover for Russia. I mean, on that point, just to draw a parallel with, with the Warsaw Pact, um, exactly the same could be said about the degree to which Warsaw Pact forces were essentially integrated into a Soviet command structure. Both the Hungarian and the Czechoslovak militaries, and of course the experience of what happened in, in Hungary in 1956 versus Czechoslovakia in 1968, in one case you get fierce resistance, in another case not, really emphasizes this point that Keir makes, is about the, the difficulty really in understanding that human terrain and knowing quite how far, when push comes to shove, forces will fight. I suspect that the Belarusian forces actually do feel Belarusian first and foremost, and at least a certain proportion of them would, would resist, but who can tell? Now, when we look at the scenarios, the, the scenarios we kind of looked at so far were from outside in, meaning from Russia towards Belarus. From towards Belarus. Um, what's the probability or what's the likelihood um, of a scenario of the situation in Belarus spilling into Russia in terms of kind of a, a Russian spring situation that it will actually... Um, it would actually lead to an instability 
in Russia of uh, the Putin and, and Putin's uh, Putin's regime, and and in general to a, an instability within Russia when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the political establishment in Russia. Um, what would you say, for example, to that, Mark, in terms of the potential of the situation in Belarus actually spilling over to to Russia and threatening Putin's regime there? There's something that we've heard a lot of people in the West talk about, and I suspect, though, that's really wishful thinking more than anything else. I mean, we have seen the protesters in Khabarovsk over in the Russian Far East who have their own reasons to, to, to be protesting, nonetheless also saying they stand in solidarity with Belarus and so forth. But quite one of the quite, unfortunately, depressing successes of Putin's propaganda machine has been, I think, to present the point that these kinds of mass expressions of people power actually can be very, very disruptive and problematic for the people themselves. And I mean, people often made the point that uh, Ukraine, a, a successful, democratic, prosperous Ukraine, would be a very dangerous model as an alternative route for a, for a post-Soviet Slavic country to go. But the point is, at the moment, Ukraine is, is democratic, but not necessarily especially stable or, or economically prosperous. So I think the real risk of, of Belarus for, for Moscow is not immediate. It's not actually that people power brings down Lukashenko and suddenly people think, ha, that sounds like, like a good idea. Because Lukashenko is not Putin, Russia is not Belarus, very different situations, and actually very different levels of, of legitimacy. I mean, however much it, it's faked and massaged and manufactured, nonetheless, there is a higher degree of legitimacy for the Putin regime than there is for the Lukashenko one. Not that that's really saying that much these days. It's more that, in fact, if sometime down the line, Belarus can demonstrate how successful such uh, people's revolutions can be in creating the kind of country that Russians might want to, to live in, then that, that might be a threat. But as I said, I don't really see it as something um, at the moment. And interestingly enough, although we're getting some of the usual sort of blowhard commentators on Russian state television, where we have these sort of geopolitical talk shows that really are more about spectacle and toxic propaganda than real analysis, saying various things about the sort of the horrors of color revolution and so forth, at the moment, at least, the Kremlin itself seems relatively relaxed about this. Yes, it's true. If there were a change of government in Belarus that came about as a result of a mass uprising, as a result of people power, this would be a, a terrible precedent and a terrible example, which would have Russia, would have the Kremlin quite worried. But, of course, it depends on a number of factors, which, as Marcus pointed out, simply are not present in Russia at the moment. Uh, there isn't that level of discontent. There isn't that uh, total lack of legitimacy that um, that Mark described. Having said that, one of the things that, uh, that we have to bear in mind while recognizing that this would probably be more alarming to the Kremlin than actually genuinely motivating for the Russian population is the surprise that everybody has felt at the extent of the discontent in Belarus itself. I think even the protesters were taken aback at just how much popular support uh, there was for what they were doing and uh, how many people we've seen um, changing sides from the from the security forces, the armed forces staying out of it altogether and as we referred to earlier, uh, Lukashenko getting heckled when he goes to visit what he thinks is his base of support. So one of the things that the Kremlin would no doubt be worried about when looking at this is, well, we think we have a handle on just how much um, 
how much legitimacy we have, how much support we have, how hard it would get people to get people motivated to actually come out on the streets. But are we really sure might there be a surprise waiting somewhere in the same way that there was in Belarus? But overall, I agree with um, with Mark. I think this is a longer term problem. It's not something that is immediately going to, to spark changes in Russia or to spill over into Russia itself. And if, if you were currently leading the the strategy of NATO uh, or the U.S. in regard to this uh, to this situation. Um, what would be the advice that you would give um, if you were advising the, the decision makers in in NATO or in the U.S. or in Europe? What would be the advice that you would give them in terms of what to do and what not to do uh, in regard to the current situation in Belarus? Uh, Mark, this one is for you. <laughs> Okay. Um, to be honest, I mean, I, I, I've written something recently for, for Ramot Ruslan where I said, in some ways, this is, this is scope for, for Hippocratic diplomacy. Um, in other words, that sort of first principle ought to be first do no harm. My big concern is precisely that the West, in the long term, I think has all the power of example of economic prosperity of soft power and so forth going for it and I think there there is in due course going to be a sort of a natural gravitation of countries such as Belarus towards the West but in the short term if we make it look as if we are treating this as some kind of tug of war between Russia and the West for who who gets Belarus as if we're playing risk then the danger is that that absolutely backs Putin into a corner um, you know, as we've said in the, in, in, at the beginning of this podcast, that his absolute nightmare is losing Belarus to, to the West, not least because he's thinking of his place in history and he doesn't want to be the Tsar who manages to lose both Ukraine and Belarus. So I, I think the thing to do is, is, first of all, make sure that in our rhetoric, we make it clear that we absolutely are opposed to what Lukashenko is doing. And indeed, we should be not be talking about Lukashenko as president anymore. Um, but on the other hand, that we are accepting that this is a Belarusian issue for, for the Belarusians to, to sort out. So in that context, there's a lot of small scale things we can be doing. We can be providing asylum for opposition figures, anyone who, who falls foul of the regime, and perhaps most importantly, their family. As, as, as we've seen, families are being used to bring leverage to bear. We can not just sanction the individuals. And unfortunately, the European Union is, is, is very good about individual sanctions, but very slow. Um, this kind of fast moving situation does not show the European Union at its best. Um, they're talking about maybe having a sanctions list ready by the end of this month or the beginning of next, by which time this crisis may be over. But also extending that and making it clear that figures within, for example, the police and security apparatus, if they continue to follow Lukashenko's orders, they will be on you know, no visa lists and, 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 and such like. We can absolutely continue to be pushing genuine, unfiltered information, truth, to counter what remaining propaganda the regime can put forward. Though interestingly enough, we're actually seeing that the, the Belarus media itself is doing a quite heroic job in now presenting truth to, to, to the Belarusian people. So anyway, there's a whole array of relatively small scale, relatively unambitious, moves that we can make. But I think for the moment, my concern will be precisely that we can actually damage the situation more than we can improve it. 
Well, there are three different um, actors, if you like, three different identities that, uh, of the West that uh, could or could not take action and here and uh, and either make things better or worse. As as Mark said, there's um, the EU, there's Europe, and I think uh, a lot of the things Mark was just saying are probably uh, would probably be enacted through the EU and its its individual member countries that are that are bordering Belarus. But then there's also NATO and there's also the United States. Uh, nobody at the moment is expecting any coherent sensible, helpful input from the United States in this situation, given what's happening at home. That leaves NATO. Uh, what should and should not NATO be doing in this particular situation? Uh, I am sure that uh, the the planners and the, uh, the intelligence services within NATO will have been looking very carefully at what it would mean if Russian forces were to be present in Belarus by whatever means they got there, whether it's an invasion, whether it's being invited in, whether it's some other change to the situation. That would be a huge change to the defense and security situation across much of Central Europe. Again, one of the, the fictions that we've heard many times in the past about how Belarus works and how its interaction with, with the Russian military works is that they are already there. All of these um, popular scenarios about Russia uh, making a grab for the Suvalki Gap, the um, that strip of borderland between Poland and Lithuania that separates Kaliningrad, the ex from the Russian mainland. All of those have been dependent on Russia actually already being present in Belarus. And what if that were suddenly to come true? Suddenly you have a situation where not only is Russia's reach into Europe with aircraft, with missiles, vastly extended suddenly, but also all of those scenarios about notionally cutting off the Baltic states by, by uh, removing their land access are several geopolitical steps closer. So put that together with concerns over anti-access and area denial potential for Russia, uh, not something that's actually a Russian operational con concept, but still, it does describe the way in which Russia could, if it wished to, uh, extend interdiction across wide areas of Central Europe. And you have a lot of very serious defense implications for if the situation does change, even if it's not an overt invasion. Suddenly you have Ukraine, which is having to completely reorient its defense posture and, and post, present itself with a threat from the north, from Belarus, as well as currently its ongoing conflict in the east. And you have countries which now suddenly effectively have a direct border with Russia where they didn't have one previously. It's huge change, it's huge upheaval. And I hope that uh, planners, that NATO, um, the UK, uh, the United States within Europe, European Command, are all looking very closely at how this might work out, even if it is not the worst case scenario of an actual military conflict between Russia and Belarus. I mean, on that point, and, and Keir's absolutely right, that it absolutely would, would dramatically shift the, the algorithm of force within Europe. Um, I think we also have to be aware of, 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 of the optics and in a way how you play the Kremlin. Um, we need, on the one hand, to be obviously looking at this risk and also to be communicating to Moscow just how serious we would regard this, that we wouldn't regard it as a simply a, a piece of fraternal transmission of forces around the Union state, but as an invasion and an invasion with all kinds of knock-on threats. But my big concern would be that that be done relatively quietly. We've got to realise, and I mean, it's a shame to be having to think in these terms, but nonetheless, the Kremlin is dominated by a coterie of people who could, I think, fairly be described as paranoid conspiracy theorists, 
who regard the West as implacably committed to constraining, marginalizing, and in the most extreme cases, dismembering the Russian Federation. And therefore, I think anything that was really looking overtly like a challenge, there are some people in, in Putin's circle who will be scurrying to him and saying, Vladimir Vladimirovich, this is an attempt to make us look weak. This is an attempt to browbeat us and make us look like we cannot stand up against Western pressure. Uh, and again, I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it's sad that it's almost playground psychology at work. But nonetheless, I think that that is the situation we're in. So by all means, we ought to be communicating our, not just our concerns, but the fact that there will be very serious consequences, consequences much more serious than we've seen with Ukraine, because you know, if they escalate, we have to escalate. But nonetheless, I think I would like to see this being done with a certain degree of discretion. From the perspective of uh, looking into the situation six months from now, or one year from now, when the situation um, might lead to a new regime, um, is the new regime more likely to be pro-West or pro-Russia if it's a more democratic regime, not a, a more authoritarian regime, meaning a, a scenario when, in which we see a new government, a new regime, um, which is something new? What are we most likely to see, a more pro-West or a more pro-Russia kind of a regime in that case? Um, Mark, this one, we'll start with you. I mean, I think that we will see a, a, a new government that its heart is pro-Western, but its head realizes that there's a limit to how far it can actually push that. Not just because of Moscow's security leverage, but also the fact that over a third of Belarus's exports go to Russia. More than half of its imports, particularly energy, come from Russia. Even without the Union Treaty status, none. The, you know there is so much that connects Belarus with Russia for the moment. So again, I, I think that if assuming that, that we see a, a smart and more liberal government take take power, which I think is is is, is, is what maybe I'm perhaps unfashionably optimistic, but I think we will see in, 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 in that time frame. I think that it will realize that its scope to reorient itself internationally is limited. I mean, although there's not a perfect parallel, but if one looks at what's happened in Armenia, where you had a revolution and the rise of a reformist leader, with whom at first the Russians were un, unsure if they could deal, but he made it clear that although he stood for democratization at home, he wasn't going to change Armenia's international status. And now we have a situation where Armenia's rival, Azerbaijan, is actually complaining about the extent to which the Russians are supportive. Now, again, that's very different. Armenia is surrounded, or feels surrounded by enemies and such like. But nonetheless, I think that's what we'll see. We, we will see a regime which is implicitly pro-Western. And again, I think that if we look at it in the grand scheme of things, not the, the six to 12 months, but the six to 12 year span, we will almost certainly see a slow drift of Belarus toward the West. One that is constantly having to try and make sure that Moscow does not either notice it or object to it. 
along these six to twelve years, I agree absolutely with Mark. It's a uh, it's continuing a progression that we thought we were seeing even from Lukashenko before the the latest crackdown. But you also heard Mark there uh, just catch himself being optimistic. Uh, yeah, it's true. If there were a a smart and liberal-ish uh, government coming into power in Belarus, then you would expect to see all of those things: the pragmatism, the uh, the realization um, that you cannot disentangle yourself from Russia in quite that way so swiftly. But here again, we're up against wild cards. Not only do we not know exactly how the balance of power between protesters and Lukashenko is going to develop over the next few weeks, but also we don't know who is actually going to eventually be in charge of whatever might replace Lukashenko. We don't have a clear opposition leader, the one that uh, that has been, uh, has arrived in that position, has done so more or less by accident. It hasn't really given any indication of actually wanting to continue after she's made her point. So we have a whole range of different possibilities for who actually might be in charge after Lukashenko disappears. And if we are to be optimistic, then we might say, yes, they might be, uh, they might be smart, but then again, they might not. So let's not take anything for granted in the actual future direction of, of Belarus. Um, is there a way to look into the situation in Belarus and say what we might have seen is the evolution of Belarus into the second Poland, so to speak, uh, a country that uh, in the end of the day will become fundamentally uh, concerned about Russia, fundamentally um, with, um, with a strong connotation towards the West, um, which will lead it to be uh, have a strategy which is I, w I wouldn't say almost anti-Russian, but definitely concerned and worried about Russian. Is that a possibility that we're going to see Belarus kind of sliding over into that kind of a um, that kind of a role? Care, I, I would like to to continue with you on this one. I think for that you'd have to be looking a very long way into the future. Some elements of it, of course, are already present. Belarus is concerned about Russia for some of the reasons that uh, that we've already outlined, and we've seen all of these efforts to to try to reduce the dependence on Russia that is uh, is such a constraint for Belarusian policy. Uh, for example, not only looking to the EU for diversification, but also looking to China for investment, for uh, for arms sales, for whatever uh, Belarus can find in order to, to reduce this entanglement. However, uh, what you don't have is that same sentiment of Russia as, uh, as an occupying power, Russia as the, uh, as the enemy that you see in Poland, and you don't have that same consciousness among ordinary people uh, that this is the, the threat from the East as opposed to being much more recently part of the same country. Mark, do you see the same, um, the same kind of difference there between Poland and Belarus in terms of how people actually feel about Russia? Yes, absolutely. Um, and in, in many ways, obviously, it'll depend quite what happens at, at this crucial juncture. My, my sense is that Belarus is Moscow's to lose. Um, at present, yes, there are people who have uh, a sense that, in fact, they, they would quite like to be more like Russia in terms of efficient and more prosperous and so forth. Many who would actually be much more likely to, to, to want to be European. But there is that sense that, that they are part of the same fraternal Slavic community uh, as Russia. Um, there certainly isn't the, the extraordinary centuries long um, history of competition, conquest and outright brutality that marks the, the Polish-Russian relationship. So, I mean, although 
you know, it's it, it, it's easy to draw parallels because of the current situation and because of the geographic location. But I, I agree, we're not not in that kind of situation now. As we reach the conclusion of the podcast, I want to ask uh, each of you, uh, and we'll start with you, Mark, to kind of give me um, give us your final remarks uh, or kind of final thoughts on how you see the situation evolving and, and about how will this going to also impact and relate to Russia and how we're going to see Russia uh, responding to the situation. What, what are you kind of like final mark, remarks and thoughts about this? I suppose two points really, one of which is looking at Belarus, one of which is looking at Russia. In terms of Belarus, I mean, precisely because Lukashenko is now so dependent on the security forces, Everything now depends on their morale, their discipline, their willingness to go along with him. I mean, the, the interesting thing is really it's Defense Minister Khrenin, it's the Interior Minister Karayev and the KGB Chief Akulchik, who in a way now are the people in whose hands Lukashenko's future rests. But even so, they don't necessarily control their, their, their structures. And going back to again, right, the point that Kier made right at the beginning is that these kind of transitions can, can be slow and then happen all at once. I think if we do begin to see major defections within the security apparatus, that will probably suddenly become a flood. No one wants to be left behind. No one wants to be caught when you know, nine out of 10 of, of, of the security apparatus has defected or deserted to be that tent man who's left to face the lustration committees and the war crimes tribunals and whatever else. So I think that that's really the key thing I'm looking at at the moment in, in, in Belarus, is to see if there's any signs of any substantive rather than piecemeal defections within the security apparatus. But in terms of Russia, I mean, this is interesting because it's going to give us a pretty good insight into decision making processes within the Kremlin. And one of, for me, the biggest concerns about Russia, which is not so much, I mean, in a way, the, the hawkishness, the nationalism, that's obviously deeply problematic, but that is at least understood. One of the key issues we really don't know is how good a vision of the world Putin has. How much is he being briefed simply to flatter his prejudices and to please him? And how much is he being told hard truths by particularly the, the intelligence and security services who are the ones who are meant to be giving him the ground truth of the, of, of the world, but who unfortunately too often become courtiers. So I think it's going to give us a pretty good sense of both the appetite for risk within the Kremlin, but also the understanding the rea of the realities of the world around from the Kremlin. And that, for me, is the biggest danger, not just as relates to Belarus, but as relates to a whole series of other crises, current and prospective that may well be in the future, is the Russians are not fools. The Russians are not zealots. The Russians are actually fairly pragmatic. However, they can also operate from a total misunderstanding of the realities on the ground, particularly as it relates to the West. A total sense that precisely the West is motivated by a pathological dislike of Russia and will use every opportunity, every crisis to bring it down. We will have to see if that becomes the uh, determining factor in their response to Belarus. And if it does, it's going to be bad for Belarus, it's going to be bad for Russia and it's going to be bad for us.
Let me take them in reverse order then. Uh, Marx made an extremely important point about Russia. Now, in all of the conversations and discussions uh, and well-informed discussions that we've seen over the last few days, some arguing that Russia is likely to, to intervene militarily in Belarus, others putting forward lots of sensible reasons why Russia would not. Uh, all of the, the arguments against Russia doing something rash and stupid rest on well-argued, persuasive, logical assessments of the situation. But you have to only hope that it looks logical in the Kremlin as well. And as Mark has just suggested, we have to remember that we're actually uh, seeing things through a completely different prism of logic and assumptions about the world than, than Moscow would. So let's not assume that Russia would necessarily do the same thing that seems sensible in London or Washington or Brussels, precisely because of this um, this distorting lens through which Russia views the world and potentially also because of the information about what's happening in the world that may or may not be reaching the key decision makers there. So it is yet another wild card to add to the deck that we have here uh, when deciding what's going to happen over the next few days. And then the, the final point on Belarus. Yes, it's now a test of will and endurance between the protesters and the security forces, but there's one specific question that will decide a lot and that is how willing are the security forces to spill blood and incur mass casualties in order to restore order? And that's a question that will be asked up and down the chain of command. Will there be orders to actually fire into crowds? Will people actually obey those orders? If not, is there a tipping point in which we start those mass defections that Mark was talking about? Really, it may come down to very small, very individual decisions in one or two places in Belarus that then have a cascading effect. It's similar to if we can go back to the Ukraine example for just one moment. If you look at the, the seizure of Crimea in early 2014, some of the key decision points were really just conversations between individuals, between two people. Like, for example, at the um, at the entrance to the, the parliament in Simferopol, when the Russian special forces are trying to get in and eventually just walk in after, after somebody decides to let them in. And that precipitates the chain of events which, um, which leads to parliament decisions which has knock-on effects politically. It could come down to something as simple as that, one single interaction between a protester and a member of the security forces that decides the whole thing. Mark here. I want to thank you both for uh, participating in this podcast. This has been definitely very, very interesting, enlightening, and also uh, I definitely learned a lot from it. Um, so thank you both for um, participating in the podcast and also for sharing your thoughts on the topic.